Week 8 Lecture, March 6th, Finding, Understanding, and Evaluating Non-Scholarly Sources, and Learning to Synthesize Research. And this is the week where it all starts to come together, when everything I've been going on and on about all semester should begin to click. But before I start reviewing new content, I want to address a super common issue many of my students have complained about over the years, remembering and applying what they learn. I don't think it's a coincidence that we all have shorter attention spans and struggle to focus on and process new information. A lot of that has to do with the media environment in which we live. Some of it is also due to more of us being diagnosed with learning and attention differences, or at least suspecting we have them. The reasons for these phenomena are many and complex. Too complex for me to get into now, but the bottom line is this. It can be hard to remember what you read, listen to, or watch. So I've put together what I hope will be a helpful tip sheet that contains specific, concrete strategies, all based on learning science, that you may find useful. I'll include the content from that tip sheet in this week's audio materials, but if you don't think you need it, just skip ahead to the next clip. At the end of the day, remembering new information comes down to being able to apply it to your own life in some useful way, and that's what this tip sheet is meant to do. Now, on to our new content, which probably isn't all that new for some of you. Last week, we discussed how to evaluate scholarly sources for reliability and usefulness, so this week, we'll spend a bit of time reviewing non-scholarly sources. Notice I didn't say popular. In academic life, we frequently talk about scholarly versus popular sources, as though one is always better than the other. But truthfully, it depends on what you're researching. Non-scholarly is also a more accurate representation of much of what we find in the research process, because it includes that gray literature we talked about earlier in the semester, as well as all other forms of media that don't appear in peer-reviewed journals, which is most media, right? That includes reference books like dictionaries and encyclopedias, newspapers, unpublished doctoral dissertations, web pages and blogs, wikis, social media, etc., etc. Plenty of non-scholarly sources have quite a bit to offer you in research, but as usual, it depends on your ability to evaluate them for credibility and usefulness. I'd like to start by talking about gray literature again, since it serves as a kind of bridge between scholarly and non-scholarly literature. As a reminder, gray literature is generally more reliable than standard non-scholarly literature because it usually represents research of some kind. But it's not scholarly because it's not peer-reviewed. Examples include government reports and documents, doctoral dissertations, statistics, business reports, and legal documents. Just like any other source, it must be evaluated. A scholar at an Australian university developed what I think is a useful checklist for determining the credibility of gray literature. It's called ACODS, and it stands for Authority, Accuracy, Coverage, Objectivity, Date, and Significance. You can and should use lateral reading to answer many of the questions in each of these categories. Now, let's talk about news sources, because newspapers, print or digital, are a great source for lots of research topics. But all newspapers are not equal in their quality. In Web Literacy for Student Fact Checkers, Mike Caulfield identifies four specific elements of news sources that can help you determine whether they're right for you. One, machinery of care refers to the processes a source has in place to provide accurate information, minimize error, and correct error when it does happen. Two, transparency refers to how clearly a source marks each section appropriately. For example, most newspapers have opinion and editorial columns, which are based on readers' or writers' personal feelings about a topic. 
Those kinds of articles aren't as helpful in research, but if you can't clearly identify that's what you're reading, you have a problem. There are plenty of stubborn folks out there who can present their opinions as though they were facts, and that means it could be hard for you to tell the difference. Transparency also refers to a source's willingness to tell you where they got their information and how they verified it. They will often provide links to those sources. A note here, you will regularly see journalists use phrases like, the source spoke on condition of anonymity because of X, Y, or Z. X, Y, or Z is usually that they fear for their job, or they don't have official permission to speak on behalf of a government agency, or something like it. That doesn't necessarily mean the source isn't credible, but it does mean you should do some extra digging in cases like that. Three, expertise means newspapers hire reporters with the credentials to be ethical journalists. Many reporters cover a specific beat, like healthcare or education or criminal justice. Do they have the necessary credentials or experience to cover those beats well? And four, agenda means high quality news sources do the best they can to present information objectively and allow the audience to make their own judgments about issues. We know, of course, that many news outlets are known for specific political biases. But if you know what that bias is going in, you're in a much better position to evaluate truth claims they might make for what they are. Everyone has an angle, but if a news source comes across as promoting or rejecting a specific agenda, tread cautiously from a research perspective. Remember that there are likely lots of views on your specific topic. Don't ignore the ones that disagree with yours. National newspapers of record are a good starting point if you're looking for news sources, because they're generally acknowledged to be relatively reliable sources for information about what's going on in a particular place. National newspapers of record generally cover stories across the country in which they are situated. In the US, those are widely acknowledged to include the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post. But don't forget that every country has them. So if you're exploring a topic that might be of international interest, try looking at news sources outside the US. One strategy you might also find useful as a researcher is searching historical newspaper articles. As Caulfield points out, this can be useful if you're trying to track down a claim someone makes today about an event that happened a long time ago. Many academic databases also include access for historical newspapers. But you can also often Google claims to see if you can track them down that way. All the US national newspapers of record include archives on their site, sometimes going back to the very beginnings of the paper. Speaking of tracking information down, Caulfield also has some useful tips for how to check the reliability or accuracy of online claims and quotes. Let's review a few of them. First, let's talk about what the Wayback Machine is. It's a project of the Internet Archive an online library whose mission is, quote, to provide universal access to all knowledge, end quote. Sounds a little out there, right? But actually, they're doing a pretty good job. To date, they have archived more than 866 billion web pages, going back to the beginning of the internet, as well as millions and millions of books, audio, video, images, software programs, including classic computer games, etc. It's an amazing enterprise. The Wayback Machine helps users track the history of a website through web captures, snapshots of what a page looks like at any given time. So, you know what they say about not being able to really erase things you post online? Chances are good that they're right. And in case you're wondering, yes, what the Internet Archive does through the Wayback Machine is completely legal because the Internet is a publicly accessible tool. In fact, 
Material from it has been determined admissible in various court cases where the history of changes to a website was important to the ruling. It's important to note here that the Wayback Machine does not archive every web page ever published, but they're getting through an awful lot of them, which means that if for some reason in the course of your research it would help you to track changes to a site, or even just look up how a site presented 15 years ago, chances are good you could use the tool with some success. And while we're getting in the practice of tracking down information, what about tracking down quotes? This can be useful in research in two ways. One, maybe you see a quote from someone that could really elevate your argument, but you want to make sure it's accurate. Or two, maybe you find a quote you really like, but you have no idea who said it. You can always just put that quote in quotation marks and do a Google search for it, but you can also search Google Books for it, which would be especially helpful if you're looking for something research-oriented. If the quote originated in a book, that's going to be a more reliable source than social media, right? So I generally recommend starting a quote search by going to books.google.com. Of course, there are other potential issues with Google we need to be aware of in research. One of them is the snippets that pop up when you search a term, and I think Caulfield wisely cautions us to be a bit suspicious of them. The snippet we're referring to is the box that shows up under the search bar when you ask Google a question. That snippet, or short answer, comes from somewhere. So rather than just trusting Google, which we know uses various kinds of algorithms to determine what it thinks is the right answer, look at the website from which Google pulled the answer. Sometimes the answer is clearly just wrong, but more often the answer is correct from a particular perspective, but not objectively. The examples in this week's materials are good ones because they show Google doesn't know how to interpret questions that are asked in a confusing or unclear way. Like AI, it doesn't understand context and can result in what Caulfield calls false simplicity. In this example, we ask Google, how many apostles were there? If you're familiar with the Christian faith, you might be inclined to believe that Google's answer, 12 apostles, is the right one. But if you investigate the source of the answer, you learn that the original source actually gives a bit more context than is evident from the Google search. It says there were 12 original apostles, but if you dig deeper, you'll find there's actually some debate about this answer because of who replaced dead apostles, who counted as an apostle, etc., etc. Another challenge with Google snippets is called misleading highlights, which means that in the snippet, Google might highlight specific numbers that it thinks are the right answer to the question, but those numbers may actually not be the answer at all. This is less of a problem than it used to be, but is still worth noting. Other issues with Google come from the fact that we either mistakenly or intentionally include confirmation bias in our searches. When we use certain words, those words are going to elicit certain kinds of responses. For example, if I go back to an earlier week's materials, if I search for, was 9-11 a conspiracy, I am far more likely to get Google responses that indicate it was a conspiracy because of how I phrased the question. The moral of the story is that Google is basically a frenemy. Someone whose stories may be incredibly helpful, but that you should always verify as best you can. One final note in this section, I'd like to introduce you to a term called astroturfing. Maybe you've already heard about it, but maybe you haven't thought about its potential role in research. A lot of nonprofit organizations started out as grassroots groups, meaning a group of people who decided they needed to take action on an important issue. They often didn't get paid for this work, but they advocated like it was their full-time job. Many grassroots groups eventually became larger, incorporated nonprofits, enabling them to accomplish more. Grassroots work is powerful because it's of the people. 
That is, a small group of people decided to take on a big problem or a big corporation or something else much bigger than themselves. It gives us a sense of David versus Goliath victory. And of course, powerful groups aren't ignorant of that fact. So perhaps predictably, those with power and money began to unscrupulously use this system to gain backing for their own advocacy issues. But when they do this, they tend to cover their tracks however they can. Because if it became public knowledge that their advocacy was not people-powered, but corporation and money-powered, well, they'd lose a lot of support. When a large, powerful group creates what looks like a small, grassroots effort to gain influence, that's called astroturfing. You know, because while astroturf looks like grass, it's not actually grass. The main way this could come up in research is when you look at smaller nonprofit advocacy groups, as in not the big name nonprofits, that may have something important to say about your topic. In those cases, ask yourself who is funding the group, who founded the group, and what interest the group has in the issue at hand. Find out who is holding the purse strings, and you will learn most of what you need to know. It's not unlike when we look at scholarly studies to see who funded them, right? We always want to find out as best we can who is behind the source. This is a good time for us to review some useful steps for recognizing persuasive language, which takes many different forms but often shows up as storytelling. Remember that whole conspiracy theory lecture about why stories stick? Presenting evidence, often incompletely or out of context. Making attacks to elicit an emotional response from you. Using flattery to elicit another kind of emotional response from you and using inclusive language to make you feel like part of the team or in-group. All of these strategies can make it difficult to tell the difference between fact and opinion, a point we discussed a couple of weeks ago as well. I keep harping on this point because it's so important. Opinions aren't necessarily bad, and facts aren't necessarily good, but we must be able to tell the difference between the two. Once you practice it for a while, you get really good at spotting manipulation. The last two parts of this week's lecture have to do with writing, specifically the kind of writing you'll do in your literature review. A literature review is a synthesis of the literature you found on your topic. It is not merely a summary of each article you're discussing, but rather a more complex paper that shows you understand the relationships between your sources and the arguments they make. One of the reasons an annotated bibliography precedes a literature review is that the annotated bib allows you to summarize your sources in such a way that ensures you understand what each of them says. Once you understand what they say, you can start to see patterns in the conversations happening about your topic. Author A agrees with author B, and author C disagrees with both of them, and so on and so forth. This scholarly conversation is important because it shows that your topic, like all other topics, is not cut and dry. Different arguments are being made from different angles, and now you're getting ready to participate in that conversation. The literature review is where you begin participating. To synthesize something means to combine ideas to form a theory. In this case, that means pulling together your sources and talking about them in a way that supports or challenges your thesis. You're in luck, because there's a step-by-step -step process you can use to get this started. First, organize your sources. You started doing that with your annotated bibliography but now you can put them in order of who agrees with whom, who disagrees with whom, etc. The second step is to outline your structure, which is the first part of the literature review assignment you'll do in this class. There are a few ways you can outline, though two of them are the most popular for this class. Thematic organization means you organize your information according to themes related to your overall topic. For example, if you're discussing the benefits of legalizing marijuana, you might start the paper by reviewing the landscape of legalization across the U.S., 
You might then have a section that talks about the economic benefits, followed by a section that discusses the health benefits, and so on and so forth. Chronological organization means organizing the review by time period, usually earliest to latest. To take the marijuana example, maybe your first section talks about the earliest days of marijuana use in the U.S. and how the public viewed it. The next section might be about the early 20th century, the next could be about the mid to late 20th century, and the final section could be about the 21st century. Two other strategies are methodological and theoretical, though I would say these are generally better organization methods for scientific studies. Methodological organization means you discuss studies by their methodologies. You might have a section on randomized controlled trials, one on participant observations, etc. Theoretical organization means you group studies by the schools of thought they represent. For example, one section could discuss people who are for legalization, another could discuss people who are against legalization, and a third could be about undecided people. To be clear, any of these methods are possibilities for you, as long as you understand what they require. The third step in organizing the synthesis is to create your sections, usually with subheadings. Within each section, you should create a topic sentence for each paragraph you intend to include there. We'll talk more about this when we discuss drafting the full literature review rather than just the outline. I'd like to wrap up here with a bit of a flashback to week six. We didn't talk a lot about how to make a strong argument, though I said we would. You'll really be making an argument in your literature review, and I want you to know how to do it well. So I'm drawing on one open access book we've used occasionally called Critical Thinking in Academic Research. The authors start by defining what an argument is, which is a good first step. Being involved in the scholarly conversation requires you to develop a strong argument. There are five basic elements of any argument. One, the claim tells the reader what you want them to believe. Two, reasons explain why you think what you do and help the reader understand why they should agree. Three, evidence, truly critical to a research-based argument, shows the reader you can back up your argument with reliable, credible sources. Four, the acknowledgement and response requires you to acknowledge that others don't agree with you and that they may, in fact, have good reason to disagree. And five, the warrant is kind of like the drop the mic moment in an effective argumentative paper. Here, you've already acknowledged your opponent's position on the issue, and now you can respond using credible evidence and explaining your logic. While your argumentative paper doesn't have to follow this exact structure, it should include all the components. The order in which you use the components depends to some extent on your topic and even the discipline in which your topic is situated. Another thing I want to remind you of is avoiding the false equivalency fallacy in which you think you need to give the same attention to all objections to your argument. That's simply not true, especially if some counterarguments to yours are based on flimsy evidence, conspiracy theories, or misinformation. It's also true that you might not have a response to all possible disagreements. It's okay to admit that, though you should try to respond to the biggest disagreements if you can. One final piece of advice when it comes to preparing for the literature review. It's helpful to think of this assignment as building up your ability to engage in logical arguments and disagreements both verbally and in writing. There are certain signal phrases and key phrases that help you indicate to your reader that you're moving from one argument element to another and this week's materials offer you some good tips on how to use them well. Well, that's all for now. See you next week. Evaluating Gray Literature from the Illinois University Library website. Gray literature can be a great alternative to scholarly and peer-reviewed literature. 
but using it does mean we have to evaluate the information with an increased scrutiny than we would have to with a scholarly article. So how do we do that? Evaluating gray literature requires us to critically think about the nature of the document, the organization who produced it, and the information it presents. A good way to do this is to use the ACODS checklist, which was created by Jess Tyndall. A stands for authority. Who is responsible for the content and are they credible? The second A stands for accuracy. Is the document supported by credible authoritative sources? C stands for coverage. Does the document clearly state parameters that define their content coverage? O stands for objectivity. Is there bias? Is it easily detected? D stands for date. Can you find the date? For the content to inform your research, it must have a date to confirm relevance. And S stands for significance. Does the document add something unique to the research? Authority. Think about the last time you heard a piece of gossip. Did you believe the person who told you the rumor? Or, in other words, did you think they had the authority to talk about the situation with accuracy? Is the gossiper associated with the people or events featured in the gossip? In the same way, we must decide if we believe the authors and publishers of information resources. But first, we need to know who is giving us the information. According to Tyndall, researchers can ask the following questions to assess the authority of a document. For each individual author, ask yourself, are they associated with a reputable organization? Do they have professional qualifications or considerable experience? Have they produced or published other work in the field? Are they recognized experts, identified in other sources? Are they cited by others? Use Google Scholar as a quick check. Are they a higher degree student under expert supervision? For each organization, ask yourself, is the organization reputable? Is the organization an authority in the field? And in all cases, does the item have a detailed reference list or bibliography? Think critically about both the organization and the authors and ask yourself if they have the authority to put out such information. Accuracy. Let's think back to the last rumor you heard. If a second person were to come to you with the same rumor, would you believe it more? If the person sharing the rumor had a history of telling you inaccurate gossip, would you believe them now? Did the gossiper tell you how they found out this information? When evaluating information, we want to see what the creator of the information has done to ensure the accuracy of the information being presented. Things like peer reviewing, correct and findable citations, clear explanations of how the information was gathered, and quick publishing of corrections can bluster a creator's reputation of accuracy. According to Tyndall, researchers can ask the following questions to assess the accuracy of a document. Does the item have a clearly stated aim or brief? If so, is this met? Does it have a stated methodology? If so, is it adhered to? Has it been peer-reviewed? Has it been edited by a reputable authority? Is it supported by authoritative, documented references or credible sources? Is it representative of work in the field? If no, is it a valid counterbalance? Is any data collection explicit and appropriate for the research? If the item is secondary material, like a policy brief or a technical report, refer to the original document. Is it an accurate, unbiased interpretation of analysis? In addition to the above questions, consider the following. Can you find this information in other places? Are there recent reports or news claiming that the authors or the organization are inaccurate in their reporting? Does this document have citations to other works? Are the sources for the information named? If the document uses statistical statements or data visualizations, 
can the reader find the data set or the methods of how the data was collected? Is the information presented in this document radically different from what other sources report? Do they have solid, verifiable information to back up these contrary claims? Look at older publications from the author or organization about different topics or events. Are these publications accurate? Does this creator have a track record of accuracy? Does the organization publish retractions or corrections to their documents? This could mean that they're dedicated to making sure their information is accurate, even if it means admitting they were previously inaccurate. Coverage. Anytime we're evaluating information, we need to be aware of the scope and birth of the information. It's difficult to make broad, sweeping, and general statements while still maintaining accuracy. Facts can change considerably based on the time, place, circumstances, involved population groups, etc. of the event. For example, statistics for asthma rates are going to be different if we're looking at a specific neighborhood versus an entire country, or for the year 1953 versus the year 2023. Even scholarly works, made by the foremost experts on very niche areas, rarely make definitive statements and often conclude that more research needs to be done to fully understand the topic. How can we verify or compare information if we don't know what exactly the information applies to? Tyndall simply tasks researchers to ask, are any limits clearly stated? It would also behoove researchers to ask, is this document making sweeping absolute statements? What specific geographic area, situation, time period, legislation, etc. is this document reporting on? Is the focus of this document the same as the topic of our research? Or is it about something else and only making a tangential mention of our topic? If so, the statements made by the document on our target topic are not likely suitable for use in our research. Objectivity. Deciding the objectivity and biases of an information provider is perhaps the most important aspect of evaluating information in any context. Everyone has bias, and that bias affects what we believe and what we tell others. Researchers will need to ask themselves what the author's or organization's agenda or mission is outside of the information in the document we're evaluating. If we think back to the rumor example, we would probably consider the motives of the person telling us the gossip. Do they have a reason to tell us a lie to make themselves look better in the situation? Are they close to one person involved in the gossip-inducing event, and would that relationship change what they tell others? Keep in mind that in both gossip and literature, people's potential biases are rarely stated or acknowledged, so those looking to evaluate information will have to do some digging. Tyndall states that researchers should ask, opinion, expert, or otherwise, is still opinion. Is the author's standpoint clear? Does the work seem to be balanced in the presentation? Additionally, researchers should ask the following. How does the author or the organization get their funding? Could they be altering the information for more sales, ad revenue, online views, increased donor activity, etc.? What do they gain from getting me to believe what they're saying? Political support, funding, paid endorsement, more views, etc. Why would someone publish false or misleading information about this topic? Does this author or organization have a track record of being objective or biased? Is the document written with passionate language and strong statements? What is the personal, educational, and professional history of the author? Are their past experiences coloring how they see this issue? Date. Almost all information changes over time. More facts come to light, viewpoints change, potential biases are uncovered as time passes. Knowing the time frame our information covers, as well as when the literature was written and published, is important to evaluating the resource. 
we need to know the context for the information which can be gauged from the time it was collected and published. For example, a pro-industrial organization may use a statistic about drops in pollution to bolster a claim about how factories are not harming the environment. However, if the data was collected during the height of the 2020 pandemic, when quarantine stopped travel and limited factory operations, the claim would be misleading. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that some information degrades and becomes less accurate over time. Researchers need to critically evaluate how time of publication will change the information presented. Tyndall encourages researchers to ask, does the item have a clearly stated date related to content? No easily discernible date is a strong concern. If no date is given, but can be closely ascertained, is there a valid reason for its absence? Check the bibliography. Have key contemporary material been included? To further evaluate the impact time has on a document's information, researchers should ask, how fast-paced is the subject area? For example, information from five years ago in the field of machine learning will be obsolete today, while information about Anne Frank published five years ago would likely still be relevant. What events or changes in technology have occurred since this document was published? Would they change how this information is presented? What is the most recent news about this topic? Is it drastically different from what was published in the document? Has the organization published something more recently on the topic? If data and statistics are used, does the document state when this information was collected? And significance. Researchers need to critically consider the significance of the information they're evaluating in relation to the topic they're researching. On one hand, why bother with an item of literature that doesn't add anything new to the topic? However, non-scholarly literature can provide a lot of information that scholarly articles cannot, like personal testimonies, up-to-date information, diverse viewpoints, etc. Tyndall suggests asking the following. Is the item meaningful? This incorporates feasibility, utility, and relevance. Does it add context? Does it enrich or add something unique to the research? Does it strengthen or refute a current position? Would the research area be lesser without it? Is it integral, representative, or typical? Does it have impact in the sense of influencing the work or behavior of others? Additionally, researchers should ask, what new thing is this information telling us? Does this document make significant claims that go against what other documents tell us? Can the claims in this document reasonably be applied to our research topic? For example, statistics about elementary school attendance cannot be reasonably applied to research about high school attendance. Are there scholarly sources that provide this information? Is this document referenced often by scholarly works on this topic? What effect did this piece of gray literature have on the world? For example, a U.S. Supreme Court ruling will have significant outcomes for the U.S. Does this document provide a diverse viewpoint or a place for diverse voices that may not be covered in scholarly works? Selections from Web Literacy for Student Fact Checkers by Michael Caulfield. Chapter 26, Evaluating News Sources. Evaluating news sources is one of the more contentious issues out there. People have their favorite news sources and don't like to be told that their news source is untrustworthy. For fact checking, it's helpful to draw a distinction between two activities. News gathering, where news organizations do investigative work, calling sources, researching public documents, and checking and publishing facts. For example, getting the facts of Bernie Sanders' involvement in the passage of several bills and news analysis, which takes those facts and strings them into a larger narrative, such as Senator Sanders, an effective legislator behind the scenes, 
or Senator Sanders, largely ineffective senator behind the scenes. Most newspaper articles are not lists of facts, which means that outfits like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times do both news gathering and news analysis in stories. What has been lost in the dismissal of the New York Times as liberal and the Wall Street Journal as conservative is that these are primarily biases of the news analysis portion of what they do. To the extent the bias exists, it's in what they choose to cover, to whom they choose to talk, and what they imply in the way they arrange those facts they collect. The news gathering piece is affected by this, but in many ways largely separate, and the reputation for fact checking is largely separate as well. MSNBC, for example, has a liberal slant to its news, but a smart liberal would be more likely to trust a fact in the Wall Street Journal than a fact uttered on MSNBC because the Wall Street Journal has a reputation for fact checking and accuracy that MSNBC does not. The same holds true for someone looking at the New York Observer versus the New York Times. Even if you like the perspective of the Observer, if you were asked to bet on the accuracy of two pieces, one from the Observer and one from the Times, you could make a lot of money betting on the Times. Narratives are a different matter. You may like the narrative of MSNBC or the Observer, or even find it more in line with reality. You might rely on them for insight. But if you're looking to validate a fact, the question you want to ask is not always, what is the bias of this publication, but rather, what is this publication's record with concern to accuracy? Chapter 27. What makes a trustworthy news source? Experts have looked extensively at what sorts of qualities in a news source tend to result in fair and accurate coverage. Sometimes, however, the number and complexity of the various qualities can be daunting. We suggest the following short list of things to consider. Machinery of care. Good news sources have significant processes and resources dedicated to promoting accuracy and correcting error. Transparency. Good news sources clearly mark opinion columns as opinion, disclose conflicts of interest, indicate in stories where information was obtained and how it was verified, and provide links to sources. Expertise. Good news sources hire reporters with reporting or area expertise who have been educated in the processes of ethical journalism. Where new writers with other expertise are brought in, they are educated by the organization. Agenda. The primary mission of a good news source is to inform its readers, not elect Democrats, promote tax cuts, or reform schools. You should absolutely read writers with activist missions like these, but do not treat them as pure news sources. Here's an important tip. Approach agenda last. It's easy to see bias in people you disagree with, and hard to see bias in people you agree with. But bias isn't agenda. Bias is about how people see things. Agenda is about what the news source is set up to do. A site that clearly marks opinion columns as opinion, employs dozens of fact checkers, hires professional reporters, and takes care to be transparent about sources, methods, and conflicts of interest, is less likely to be driven by political agenda than a site that does not do these things. And this holds even if the reporters themselves may have personal bias. Good process in news culture goes a long way to mitigating personal bias. Yet, you may see some level of these things and still have doubt. If the first three indicators don't settle the question for you, you should consider agenda. Is the source connected to political party leadership? Funded by oil companies? Have the owners made comments about what they are trying to achieve with their publication? And are those ends about specific social or political change, or about creating a more informed public? Again, we cannot stress enough you should read things by people with political agendas. It's an important part of your news diet. 
It's also the case that sometimes the people with the most expertise work for organizations that are trying to accomplish social or political goals. But when sourcing a fact or a statistic, agenda can get in the way, and you'd want to find a less agenda-driven source if possible. Chapter 28, National Newspapers of Record. When it comes down to accuracy, there are a number of national newspapers in most countries that are well-staffed with reporters and have an editorial process that places a premium on accuracy. These papers are sometimes referred to as newspapers of record. And footnote here, we're aware that the origin of the term was originally a marketing plan to distinguish the New York Times from its rivals. At the same time, it captures an aspiration that is not common across many publications in a country. When I wrote code for Newsbank's historical paper archive, we took the idea of newspapers of record seriously, even on a local level. With the mess of paper startups and failures in the 1800s, understanding what was reliable was key. Which of that multitude of papers was likely to make the best go at covering all matters of local importance? National newspapers of record are distinguished in two ways. One, they are rigorous, showing attention to detail and having accountability in their editorial processes. Two, they have a truly national view and attempt to be the best possible record of what happened in the nation, not just a region, on a given day. The United States is considered by some to have at least four national newspapers of record. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post. You could add in the Boston Globe, Miami Herald, or Chicago Tribune, or subtract the LA Times or Washington Post. These lists are meant to be starting points, indicating that a given publication has a greater reputation and reach than, say, the Clinton Daily Item. Some other English language newspapers of record, the Times in the UK, the Daily Telegraph in the UK, the Irish Times in Ireland, the Times of India in India, the New Zealand Herald in New Zealand, the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia, the Age in Australia, and the Globe and Mail in Canada. Does that mean these papers are the arbiters of truth? Nope. While there are disagreements between these papers and other reputable sources, it could be worth investigating. As an example, in the run-up to the Iraq War, the Knight Ritter News Agency was in general a far more reliable news source on issues of faulty intelligence than the New York Times. In fact, reporting from the New York Times back, when, back then was particularly bad, and many have pointed to one reporter in particular, Judith Miller, who was far too credulous in repeating information fed to her by war hawks. Had you relied on just the New York Times for your information on these issues, you would have been misinformed. There's much to be said about failings such as this, and it certainly is the case that high-profile failings such as these have eroded faith in the press more generally, and for some, created the impression that there really is no difference between the New York Times, the Springfield Herald, and your neighbor's political Facebook page. This is, to say the least, overcompensation. We rely on major papers to tell us the truth, and rely on them to allocate resources to investigate and present that truth with an accuracy hard to match on a smaller budget. When they fail, as we saw with Iraq, horrible things can happen. But that is as much a testament to how much we rely on these publications to inform our discourse as it is a statement on their reliability. A literate fact-checker does not take what is said in newspapers of record as truth. But, likewise, any person who doesn't recognize the New York Times or Sydney Morning Herald as more than your average newspaper is going to be less than efficient at evaluating information. Learn to recognize the major newspapers in countries whose news you follow to assess information more quickly. Chapter 33, Using the Wayback Machine to Check for Page Changes. Sometimes we want to see how a page has changed over time or know when a page disappeared. 
using the Wayback Machine can help you do that. Here's how that works. Go to the Wayback Machine and search for a page or site. Here, we'll search for the front page of the White House site. The Wayback Machine doesn't archive every page, but they do archive an awful lot of them. Whether a page is archived will often depend on if a page was heavily linked to in the past or if it was published by a site that the Wayback Machine tracks. In the case of the White House, of course, both these things are true and we have a near-perfect history of the site. Let's go back in time all the way to 1999. When we select 1999, we see a calendar. Each circle indicates a snapshot made of the site. The green and blue indicate whether the page was a redirect, an issue beyond the scope of this article. Click on a date to see a snapshot of the page on that date. Here, we see a snapshot of the site from January 1999, at the tail end of the Clinton administration. Sites will be browsable to some extent, so go ahead and click on the links. Advanced functionality, such as search interfaces and interactive content, will usually not work. Chapter 36, Using Google Books to Track Down Quotes. Did Carl Sagan say this? Figure 91 here shows a tweet from Charles Berquist that says, suspecting Carl Sagan had either a time machine or a crystal ball. Okay, probably the time machine. And then he goes on to quote who he thinks is Carl Sagan. I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time, when the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few, and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues, when the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when, clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide, almost without noticing, back into superstition and darkness. Quotes on the internet are some of the most commonly faked content. People misattribute quotes to give them significance or fabricate tendentious quotes to create controversy. For some examples of fact-checking historical quotes, check out Quote Investigator. In our case, if we know that Carl Sagan is an author of many books, rather than starting Google or DuckDuckGo's general search, we might start in Google Books, which will likely get us to the source of the quote faster. Additionally, even if we cannot find the source, we might find someone quoting this in a book from a major publisher which is likely to have a more developed fact-checking process than some guy on Twitter. So we go to Google Books and we pick out just a short snippet of unique phrasing. I'm going to choose clutching our crystals and nervously consulting. Figure 92 shows this search. Down there at the bottom, the fourth result is a book by Carl Sagan. It says it's from 2011, but don't be fooled by this date. This is just the date of the edition indexed here. Let's click through to the book to check the quote and sort out the date later. Clicking through the book, we find the quote is accurate. More importantly, we find the surrounding context and find that this quote is not being taken out of context. Sagan was truly worried about this issue. His prediction was very much that a soundbite-obsessed media, combined with a sort of celebration of ignorance, would drag us backwards. He understood that the world was becoming more difficult while the communication of ideas was simultaneously becoming more shallow. You can find out the original publication date of this work a number of ways. There is a More Versions option on the Google Books interface. You could go look for the book's article on Wikipedia, as they'll usually give you the publication date. But the easiest way is usually to turn to the front pages of the book and find the date, just as you would with a physical book. 
Figure 94 on this page shows us that the book was originally published by the Random House Publishing Group in 1996. Chapter 37, Understanding AstroTurf. Grassroots political efforts emerge from the bottom up, with small local groups banding together to put pressure on city, county, state, or federal government to take or oppose specific action. They are people-powered, usually relying on volunteer labor and small donations from local people and organizations. In the age of social media, the phrase grassroots has also been applied to national movements that start by a small group of citizens organizing online. Being grassroots is not a technique limited to Republicans or Democrats. The Tea Party revolts against President Obama's health care plan, for example, had many grassroots elements, being organized on the local level by loosely connected people and local organizations. Moms Demand Action, a gun control advocacy group, was started when a stay-at-home mother was shocked by her son's response to the Sandy Hook school shooting. She put up a Facebook page to organize action and slowly built a movement. Citizens tend to look more favorably upon people-powered local politics than corporate-funded initiatives funded by people from somewhere else. The desire to portray corporate and non-local efforts as local has led to a practice called astroturfing, where large corporations or rich individuals use front groups that look like local groups of activists, but are funded and organized primarily by national corporations or rich individuals from elsewhere. When deciding whether an organization is astroturfing, consider the following. Who funded it? Was it a corporation, national foundation, or local money? Who founded it? Was it founded locally and by whom? What interest that group might have in the action or initiative proposed? Is it financial, for instance, or related to larger social concerns? There's a bit of a sliding scale here for what qualifies as astroturfing. A locally founded initiative that receives primarily national money is a bit less astroturfy than an organization founded directly by a corporation. An initiative that receives money from a foundation dedicated to a larger social goal, such as elimination of poverty, is less astroturfy than a corporation spending money to boost its stock price or get rid of regulations that constrain it. In general, what is most important is whether the organization's reality matches the story that they are publicly telling. Chapter 39, Treating Google Snippets with Suspicion. Occasionally, when you search for an answer to a question on Google, you will not only find websites, but you may also find a knowledge panel that appears to have what search expert Danny Sullivan calls the one true answer, an answer that appears on a knowledge panel on top of the results. Sometimes Google pulls an answer from a source algorithmically. For example, in response to how many men landed on the moon, this panel answers 12 men, citing a Quora article. Sometimes Google does not pull out the answer, but makes the answer apparent in the blurb or headline of the card, as in this answer to the query, last person to walk on the moon. Figure 98 here pulls out a Wikipedia article about Eugene Cernan and highlights Cernan as the last person to walk on the moon. This function of Google can be useful, but it malfunctions frequently enough that it should not be trusted without verifying the source and context of the answer. There are two major problems, false simplicity and false or non-standard information. False simplicity. Here's a question. How many apostles are there in the Christian tradition? Google tells you, via a panel, even pulling out the number, thereby making it look decidedly objective. There are 12. If you click through to that Quora question, though, you'll find that it answers a much more specific and simpler question. How many original apostles did Christ have, according to tradition? And for that answer, they are correct. Including Judas, there are 12. But according to tradition, 
When Judas dies, Matthias becomes an apostle. So that's 13. Then Paul is an apostle. So 14. And Barnabas, Timothy, and James. The truth is that this answer is pretty debatable. It's certainly not 12, and some versions of the Bible refer to up to 25 different people as apostles. It gets worse. These numbers, which are already various, come from various Christian traditions. Many historians, on the other hand, see the 12 apostles as a creation of the early church that had no reality or significance during the lifetime of the historical Jesus and was later retrojected into the Gospels. The fact is the whole question of how many apostles there were and who they were is inextricably bound up with complex questions of religion, history, and first century power struggles about who counted in the early church and who didn't. This may seem petty, but the truth is any extended discussion of this issue from any source, religious or historical, will surface these issues to the person who investigates. Google's panels, however, are oblivious to this kind of complexity and present a simple numerical answer where no simple answer actually exists. Misleading highlights. Google uses some programming to try and highlight relevant answers in the blurb, but the highlighting is confused or confusing. Here, Google, when asked how old Lee Harvey Oswald was when he shot Kennedy, highlights 18, 24, and 22. In reality, the answer is 24 years old, though a quick glance at this might have you thinking 18 or 22. Blatant misinformation. Sometimes the panel presents blatant misinformation. Often this material is the product of highly politicized areas or of conspiracy-believing communities, which tend to rank highly on Google search results more generally. Take, for instance, this search, where we ask Google which presidents were in the Ku Klux Klan. The Google panel provides what seems to be a definitive answer. There were five. And here, Figure 101 shows us the list. As Case University Western History professor Peter Shulman points out, this isn't even remotely true. None of these presidents were members of the Ku Klux Klan, as far as we know. And if you click through to the article, you'll find the source here is a Nigerian newspaper of uncertain stature that references a book by David Barton, a nationalist known for self-publishing dubious works of historical revisionism. There are numerous examples of similar behavior. Adrian Jeffries at the outline details some more bad snippets, including this one claiming Obama is planning for martial law. Complete fiction. Google will also tell you that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't assassinate John F. Kennedy, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Confirmation bias and bad snippets. A lot of times Google is just bad, but sometimes bad answers are often the result of asking questions in ways that tap into the language or concerns of pseudoscience, conspiracy theory, or fringe beliefs. For example, there is a very real problem some people have with monosodium glutamate, a food additive that triggers an allergic reaction in a small portion of the population. If you search on a phrase likely to be found in medical literature, like MSG sensitivity, you get a fairly reliable result. Healthline, in this case, is a recognized provider of reliable health information. All this changes if you use the language of fringe groups that believe the medical community is suppressing a link between MSG and a variety of neurological disorders. Here's what you get when you type in MSG dangers. The blurb says it all. Brain damage, Alzheimer's, learning disabilities. But if you look up the site, Mercola.com, you'll find it's run by a physician who has been warned by the FDA repeatedly to stop making false claims. Our advice. In general, simply treat the Google panel, one true answer, as you would any other top search result. Despite Google's claims to the contrary, it is not significantly more or less reliable than an average source. 
click through, trace the claims on the page to a source, and investigate the source. Never trust its result without validating the source of the claim. Chapter 44, Finding Old Newspaper Articles. While more recent news articles are available from both Google's and Bing's news search tabs, older news can be more difficult to retrieve. Many options for reviewing old news entail paying a subscription fee or per article cost, which is a bit expensive for a person just checking up on a story. In this section, we'll show you how to use news archives to check on the existence of articles at no cost. A sample problem. President Trump claimed the investigation to see if his campaign had colluded with Russia was a quote-unquote witch hunt. No sooner had he said that than this snapshot of an article appeared in my feed. Figure 119 here shows a headline that reads, Nixon sees witch hunt, insiders say, by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein in the Washington Post. From Sunday, July 22, 1973. By now you should know it's trivially easy to fake something that looks like a snapshot of an old headline. So how do we find out if this article actually ran? Our first instinct might be to go to the Washington Post to see if they have this article. That's not a bad instinct, but in this case, the headline clearly ran somewhere else other than the Post. The Washington Post doesn't tag its own articles as coming from the Washington Post. This particular headline was run in another paper. So we want to do a broad search across many historical American papers. When reporters do this, they most often use tools such as LexisNexis and ProQuest, which are usually unavailable to average people. We'll have to make do with sources that are searchable from the web. There are three major web searchable archives in the US. Google's historical newspapers, available at news.google.com newspapers, newspapers.com, and Newsbank's newspaper archive, newspaperarchive.com. Google offers complete articles. The other two offer snippets unless you pay them money, but snippets are enough for this sort of task. So we construct our search. It's just a variation on the site colon syntax we've used elsewhere. Nixon sees witch hunt. Start parentheses, site colon newspapers.com or site colon news.google.com slash newspapers or site colon newspaperarchive.com, end parentheses. And we get back a timestamp result from the LA Times with a date in 1973 that looks promising. Note that Nixon sees witch hunt, Sears insiders say, What's that Sears bit about? It becomes evident when we click through and look at the page. You can see in figure 121, we've circled the headline. The free version only offers this blurry thumbnail image of the page, but it's enough to spot the headline. It also makes obvious where the Sears came from. The text here was automatically generated by computer and must have included the Sears ad next to it as part of the headline. If we scroll down the page, we can see enough to confirm that this article as I saw it in my feed was correct even though the automatic character recognition has messed up a lot of the words. We have enough here to say that this ran in the LA Times in July 1973. And if we really wanted to see a clear version of the article, we could subscribe to the service and grab a better image, which may be what the original tweeter did. Checking cited headlines. Here's another paragraph, this time from the New York Times, that claims the LA Times ran a derogatory headline when the first female commercial pilot at a major airline got her wings. Quote, there were no female pilots at the biggest airlines until 1973, when American Airlines hired the first, Bonnie Tiberzi Caputo. In a reminder of how times have changed, that news was reported in the Los Angeles Times under the headline, Airline Pilot to Fly by Seat of Panties, end quote. The New York Times is a very reliable paper, and in this case, we probably don't need to check the article title. 
but let's try anyway with the same sort of search as above. Airline pilot to fly by seat of panties. Open parentheses, site colon newspapers.com or site colon news.google.com slash newspapers or site colon newspaperarchive.com, end parentheses. Note that because the optical character recognition sometimes transcribes things wrong, we don't put quotes around the search phrase, at least at first. When we put it in, we're in luck. We can see the headline in the blue. We might also search for a type of headline. For instance, a key point of the critics of global warming is the statement that scientists in the 1970s feared global cooling instead of global warming. The point being that the global warming scare is one in a long series of bad guesses to be later thrown away. Can we compare the number of global cooling and global warming stories in the 1970s? We execute a search for global cooling, open parentheses, site colon newspapers.com, end parentheses, 1975. And we get an article from 1975, which talks of some sensationalist claims of the coming ice age. But when the reporter talks to a climatologist, the tone is different. Quote, but Lawson prefers to speak in terms of the following probabilities. In the long run, over thousands of years, there is probability of an ice age. In the next few decades, there is a probability of a warming trend. In the next few years, the probability is that global cooling will continue downward to 19th century levels. End quote. Note, for some reason, newspaper archive searches react badly to date filters, which is why we just put 1975 in plain text. If we search for global warming in 1975, we get this quote in the January 29, 1975 edition of the Orlando Sentinel from a government scientist. Quote, after the next decade or so will come a warming trend, both because of increased CO2 in the atmosphere and thermal pollution by power plants and so on. In the 21st century, man's activities will predominate over nature. J. Murray Mitchell, Senior Research Climatologist, Environmental Data Service, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. End quote. While one would need much more evidence to settle the question of whether scientists on the whole feared global cooling or global warming in the 1970s, it's clear enough that many scientists expected warming due to man's activities even then. If you're looking at sharing an article that says that cooling was the big 1970s worry, you might want to sit on it before reposting. Recognizing persuasive language. Persuasive language can make any type of media more engaging and convincing. However, its ultimate purpose is to win your trust and influence how you think. This is why it's important to recognize common types of persuasive language so you can look beyond the rhetoric and think for yourself. Listen to the video for more on recognizing persuasive language. Telling stories. Whether it's a feature-length film or a 30-second commercial, telling stories through media makes it easier for you to agree with a particular message. But while it's easy to be charmed by a good story, ask yourself, is the tale fair and unbiased, or has it sacrificed factual accuracy for the sake of serving the message? Presenting evidence. Presenting evidence can have a tremendous influence on how you perceive a message. However, just because the media includes evidence doesn't mean it's being completely honest. Sometimes facts will be mixed in with half-truths and exaggerations to make the message seem more credible. Take care to examine all evidence before accepting a message as trustworthy. Attacks. Attacks can point out the faults of the competition, and they often provoke an audience's fears or anger, especially in political media. The next time you see an attack, keep in mind that it's trying to rile your emotions to convince you of a specific idea. 
It may also embellish facts or take a skewed perspective. So try not to pass judgment before investigating the truth. Flattery. Flattery has long been a reliable persuasion method, particularly if the media wants you to feel good about a specific product or idea. But how sincere can mass-produced praise actually be? Do your best not to be lured in by kind words, and consider if the media is just telling you what you want to hear. Inclusive language. Inclusive language frames a message in terms of us and we and our, giving the impression that the creator of the media and the audience are on the same side. However, this can come off as false and hollow, especially if it appears that the creator doesn't actually have anything in common with you. Whether it's used to reinforce the truth or hide a lack of substance, don't let persuasive language be the only thing that sways your opinion. Always look beyond the rhetoric and seek out the facts behind any claims. The blur between facts and opinions in the media. Understanding the news used to be simpler. Newspapers, radio, and TV usually made a clear distinction between objective facts that can be proven and opinion crafted by their writers and producers. They used terms like editorial, op-ed, and commentary to distinguish opinionated content from more objective reporting. But over the years, the internet has helped blur the line between fact and opinion in the media. Now, there are virtually limitless sources out there creating content online, and terms like editorial and op-ed have all but faded away. There's also no vetting process or authority that requires anyone to mention if their online content is fact or opinion. Listen to this video to learn more about facts and opinions in the media. <clears throat> opinions, the ups and downs. Just to be clear, opinions are not inherently bad when it comes to reporting the news. They can provide new context or a different perspective. Opinions have also played an influential part in history, such as when news anchor Walter Cronkite shared his personal views on the Vietnam War in 1968. Of course, perspectives like that were typically designated as opinion. But these days, we seem to have lost some of our ability to detect opinion-based material if it isn't properly labeled. Unfortunately, there are content creators out there who are happy to take advantage of that. They mix opinions in with a few facts to make their perspective more credible. This helps fire up your emotions and keep you engaged with their content. Identifying facts and opinions. At this point, you may be thinking that you could tell the difference between fact and opinion. Well, it may be harder than it looks. A Pew Research study created five factual statements and five opinion statements, and then asked people to identify which was which. Out of 5,000 adults, only 35% correctly identified all five opinion statements, while only 26% identified all five factual statements. That means the vast majority either saw facts as opinions or accepted opinions as facts. Misinterpretations like these could easily lead to confusion and difficulty in discussing the news with others. The study also found that people were more likely to view an opinion as fact if that opinion matched their existing beliefs. Spotting the difference. The blur between fact and opinion likely won't get better anytime soon, so it's up to you to spot the difference. For instance, watch out for statements that may seem factual, but are actually opinions that favor a certain perspective. And while you may find terms like editorial every now and then, don't rely on them to help you distinguish fact from opinion. Finally, avoid news sources that care more about stoking your anger and fears over reporting objective news. Though it may be difficult, recognizing fact and opinion in media can make a tremendous impact on how you see the world.
How to Synthesize Written Information from Multiple Sources by Shona McCombs, published on the Simply Psychology website. When you write a literature review or essay, you have to go beyond just summarizing the articles you've read. You need to synthesize the literature to show how it all fits together and how your own research fits in. Synthesizing simply means combining. Instead of summarizing the main points of each source in turn, you put together the ideas and findings of multiple sources in order to make an overall point. At the most basic level, this involves looking for similarities and differences between your sources. Your synthesis should show the reader where the sources overlap and where they diverge. Here's an unsynthesized example of how a student reported research. Franz studied undergraduate online students. He looked at 17 females and 18 males and found that none of them liked APA. According to Franz, the evidence suggested that all students are reluctant to learn citation style. Perez also studies undergraduate students. She looked at 42 females and 50 males and found that males were significantly more inclined to use citation software, with a p-value of less than 0.05. Findings suggest that females might graduate sooner. Goldstein looked at British undergraduates. Among a sample of 50, all females, all were confident in their abilities to cite and were eager to write their dissertations. A synthesized example of the same paper. Studies of undergraduate students reveal conflicting conclusions regarding relationships between advanced scholarly study and citation efficacy. Although Franz found that no participants enjoyed learning citation style, Goldstein determined in a larger study that all participants watched felt comfortable citing sources, suggesting that variables among participant and control group populations must be examined more closely. Although Perez expanded on Franz's original study with a larger, more diverse sample, etc., etc. Step 1. Organize your sources. After collecting the relevant literature, you've got a lot of information to work through and no clear idea of how it all fits together. Before you can start writing, you need to organize your notes in a way that allows you to see the relationships between sources. One way to begin synthesizing the literature is to put your notes into a table. Depending on your topic and the type of literature you're dealing with, there are a couple of different ways you can organize this. A summary table. A summary table collates the key points of each source under consistent headings. This is a good approach if your sources tend to have a similar structure. For instance, if they're all empirical papers. Each row in the table lists one source, and each column identifies a specific part of the source. You can decide which headings to include based on what's most relevant to the literature you're dealing with. For example, you might include columns for things like aims, methods, variables, population, sample size, and conclusion. For each study, you briefly summarize each of these aspects. You can also include columns for your own evaluation and analysis. The summary table gives you a quick overview of the key points of each source. This allows you to group sources by relevant similarities, as well as noticing important differences or contradictions in their findings. Synthesis matrix. A synthesis matrix is useful when your sources are more varied in their purpose and structure. For example, when you're dealing with books and essays making various different arguments about a topic. Each column in the table lists one source. Each row is labeled with a specific concept, topic, or theme that recurs across all or most of the sources. Then, for each source, you summarize the main points or arguments related to the theme. The purposes of the table is to identify the common points that connect the sources, as well as identifying points where they diverge or disagree. Step 2. Outline your structure. Now you should have a clear overview of the main connections and differences between the sources you've read. 
Next, you need to decide how you'll group them together and the order in which you'll discuss them. For shorter papers, your outline can just identify the focus of each paragraph. For longer papers, you might want to divide it into sections with headings. There are a few different approaches you can take to help you structure your synthesis. If your sources cover a broad time period and you found patterns in how researchers approach the topic over time, you can organize your discussion chronologically. That doesn't mean you just summarize each paper in chronological order. Instead, you should group articles into time periods and identify what they have in common, as well as signaling important turning points or developments in the literature. If the literature covers various topics, you can organize it thematically. That means that each paragraph or section focuses on a specific theme and explains how that theme is approached in the literature. If you're drawing on literature from various fields or they use a wide variety of research methods, you can organize your sources methodologically. That means grouping together studies based on the type of research they did and discussing the findings that emerged from each method. If your topic involves a debate between different schools of thought, you can organize it theoretically. That means comparing the different theories that have been developed and grouping together papers based on the position or perspective they take on the topic, as well as evaluating which arguments are most convincing. Step three, write paragraphs with topic sentences. What sets a synthesis apart from a summary is that it combines various sources. The easiest way to think about this is that each paragraph should discuss a few different sources, and you should be able to condense the overall point of the paragraph into one sentence. This is called a topic sentence, and it usually appears at the start of the paragraph. The topic sentence signals what the whole paragraph is about. Every sentence in the paragraph should be clearly related to it. A topic sentence can be a simple summary of the paragraph's content. For example, early research on X focused heavily on Y. For an effective synthesis, you can use topic sentences to link back to the previous paragraph, highlighting a point of debate or critique. For example, Several scholars have pointed out the flaws in this approach, or while recent research has attempted to address the problem, many of these studies have methodological flaws that limit their validity. By using topic sentences, you can ensure that your paragraphs are coherent and clearly show the connections between the articles you're discussing. As you write your paragraphs, avoid quoting directly from sources. Use your own words to explain the commonalities and differences that you found in the literature. Don't try to cover every single point from every single source. The key to synthesizing is to extract the most important and relevant information and combine it to give your reader an overall picture of the state of knowledge on your topic. Step four, revise, edit, and proofread. Like any other piece of academic writing, synthesizing literature doesn't happen all in one go. It involves redrafting, revising, editing, and proofreading your work. Checklist for synthesis. Do I introduce the paragraph with a clear, focused topic sentence? Do I discuss more than one source in the paragraph? Do I mention only the most relevant findings rather than describing every part of the studies? Do I discuss the similarities or differences between the sources rather than summarizing each source in turn? Do I put the findings or arguments of the sources in my own words? Is the paragraph organized around a single idea? Is the paragraph directly relevant to my research question or topic? Is there a logical transition from this paragraph to the next one. Now that you've done a lot of your research, it's time to figure out how to combine all of your sources to support your argument. This process is called synthesis. One way to think of synthesis is kind of like a puzzle. 
It requires you to put together different pieces of research from multiple sources to form a new picture. But be careful, your audience will be able to tell if you try to force a piece into a spot where it doesn't fit. Depending on how you organize the pieces, the story you tell will look a little different. The process of synthesis goes farther than just summarizing sources, or even comparing and contrasting multiple sources, and beyond mere critiques of sources. Also, when synthesizing, you are not just direct quoting other authors without using your own voice. Ultimately, you engage in synthesis to make your own point and add to the conversation. Make sure your voice is the strongest voice in the paper. Before you can effectively synthesize your research, you will need to identify the main conversations taking place on your topic. Synthesis requires you to think critically about your research and identify major themes, strengths, weaknesses, and critical gaps in the research. As you read article after article for your research paper, you should begin to notice significant conversations surrounding your topic. Ask yourself what are some of the common themes or subtopics that keep appearing in the articles you're reading. Make note of these conversations or main ideas because this will help you organize your research paper. Many students fail to synthesize their research because they organize their paper source by source. Synthesis requires you to organize idea by idea, not source by source. Use common themes in your research to help you decide what your main ideas will be. What is the conversation surrounding a main idea? To really know that conversation, you need to have looked at it from multiple perspectives or sources. The sources you choose to include, your analysis, and how you organize them in a meaningful way make your research paper unique. This means you are developing your own understanding of the conversations surrounding your topic and explicitly stating how they connect to your own argument. A helpful tool you can use to engage in synthesis is a research matrix, which helps you begin to organize by idea, while also adding your own analysis alongside your sources. The matrix shows you natural connections between your sources and allows you to visualize the conversations surrounding your topic. The research matrix helps you see strengths and weaknesses in your own argument. You do not need every single source to address every main idea. In fact, there's a high likelihood that you will have empty spaces on your research matrix, and that's okay. It shows that there is room for your own voice to join the conversation. However, if you only have one source discussing one of your main ideas, that is often a sign that you need to do more research to fill that gap on your matrix. As a rule of thumb, you should have at least two sources for each main idea in order to create a meaningful dialogue. If you need help with synthesis, you can always ask a librarian. A quick note about this resource. I want to revisit something from week six that we didn't really discuss, though there was material about it in the folder, and that is how to make a strong argument. This is an important skill for the literature review assignment, but it's also important to understand the structure of an argument that another writer is making. So please do review this entire chapter. Chapter four, making an argument from critical thinking in academic research. Making an argument. Nearly all scholarly writing makes an argument. That's because its purpose is to create and share new knowledge so it can be debated to confirm, disprove, or improve it. That arguing takes place mostly in journals and scholarly books and at conferences. It's called the scholarly conversation, and it's that conversation that moves forward what we humans learn and know. Your scholarly writing for classes should do the same. Make an argument, just like your professor's journal article, scholarly book, and conference presentation writing does. 
You may not have realized that the writing you're required to do mirrors what scholars in universities, the country, and all over the world must do to create new knowledge and debate it. Most arguments put forth a new theory, hypothesis, or new view of a current or ongoing issue. Of course, you're probably a beginner at constructing arguments and writing, while most professors have been at it for some time. And your audience, for now, also may be more limited than your professors. But the process is much the same. As you complete your research assignments, you too are entering the scholarly conversation. Making an argument means trying to convince others that you are correct as you describe a thing, situation, relationship, or phenomenon, and to persuade them to take a particular action. This skill is important not just in college, but also for nearly every professional job you hold after college. So learning how to make an argument is good job preparation, even if you do not choose a scholarly career. If you realize that your final product for your research project is to make an argument, you will have a significant head start. By keeping this in mind, you will know that the resources you're going to need are those that support the components of an argument for writing for your audience. Happily and not coincidentally, most of those components coincide with the information needs we'll be talking about. We will be discussing meeting information needs by using a variety of resources that will enable you to write the corresponding argument component in your final product. Components of an argument. Making an argument in an essay, term paper, blog post, or other format is like laying out a case in court. Just as there are conventions that attorneys must adhere to as they make their arguments in court, there are conventions and arguments made in research assignments. Among those conventions is to use the components of an argument. Let's be clear that the components of an argument include, one, a claim. What do you want me to believe? What's your point? Two, reasons. Why do you say that? Why should I agree? Three, evidence. How do you know? Can you back it up? Four, acknowledgement and response. But what about? And five, warrant. How does that follow? What's your logic? Can you explain your reasoning? Here's an example. Argument as a dialogue. Can you pick out the argument components? Here's a dialogue of an argument with the most important components labeled. Abby says, I hear last semester was a little rocky. How do you think this semester will go? This is a problem of interest put in the form of a question. Brett responds, better I hope. This is a claim that answers a question. Abby says, why is that? She's looking for a reason to believe the claim. Brett responds, I'll finally be taking courses in my major. There's the reason. Abby, why will that make a difference? In other words, how is the reason relevant to the claim? Brett says, when I take courses I'm interested in, I work harder. So he's establishing the general principle that relates the reason to the claim. Abby says, what courses? She's asking for evidence. Brett responds, history of architecture, introduction to design, giving specific instances for the reason. Abby says, but what about the calculus course you have to take again? So she's offering a contradiction to the reason. Brett says, I know I had to drop it last time, but I found a really good tutor. So he's acknowledging the objection and responding. Abby says, but won't you be taking five courses? She raises another revelation. Brett says, I know, it won't be easy. He's conceding a point he can't refute. Abby says, will you up your GPA? She's asking about the limit of the claim. And Brett responds, I should. I'm hoping for a 3.0 as long as I don't have to get a part-time job. So he is limiting the scope of the claim and adding a condition. Order of the components. 
The order in which the components should appear in your argument essays, papers, and posters may depend on which discipline your course is in. So always adhere to the advice provided by your professor and what you learn in class. One common arrangement for argument essays and term papers is to begin the essay with an introduction that explains why the situation is important, why the reader should care about it. Your research question will probably not appear in the introduction, but your answer to it, your thesis or claim, usually appears as the last sentence or two of the introduction. The body of your essay or paper follows and consists of your reasons why the thesis is correct or at least reasonable, the evidence that supports each reason, often occurring right after the reason the evidence supports, an acknowledgement that some people could have objections, reservations, counterarguments, or alternative solutions to your argument and a statement of each. Posters often don't have room for this component. And a response to each acknowledgement that explains why that criticism is incorrect or not very important. Sometimes you might have to concede a point you think is unimportant if you can't really refute it. After the body, the paper or essay ends with a conclusion, which states your thesis in a slightly different way than occurred in the introduction. The conclusion also may mention why research in this situation is important. Again, posters often don't have much room for this component. A blueprint for argument. It's no accident that people are said to make arguments. They're all constructed, and these components are the building blocks. The components are important because of what they contribute. Each generally, though not always, appears in a certain order because they build on or respond to one another. For example, diagrammed in the image on this page, the thesis or claim is derived from the initial question. The reasons are bolstered by evidence to support the claim. Objections are raised, acknowledged, and subsequently responded to. Where you get the components. This section will help you figure out which components may come from your professor, which you have to think about, which you have to write, and which you have to find in your sources. Here again are the components we'll cover. The research question you or your professor want to answer, your claim or thesis, one or more reasons for your thesis, evidence for each reason, others' objections, counterarguments, or alternative solutions, your acknowledgement of others' objections, counterarguments, or alternative solutions, and your response to others' objections, counterarguments, or alternative solutions. The question you want to answer. Sometimes your professor will give you the research question, but probably more often he or she will expect you to develop your own from an assigned topic. You will learn how to develop research questions in another section. Though vitally important, they are often not stated in essays or term papers, but are usually stated in reports of original studies, such as theses, dissertations, and journal articles. Here are some example research questions. How do some animals' bones help control their weight? Did the death of his beloved daughter have any effect on the writings of Mark Twain? Your claim or thesis. You write the claim or thesis. It doesn't come directly from a resource. Instead, it's the conclusion you come to in answer to your research question after you've read, listened to, viewed some sources. So it is a statement, not a question or a hypothesis that you plan to prove or disprove with your research. After you've read or listened to or viewed more sources, you may need to change your thesis. That happens all the time, not because you did anything wrong, but because you learned more. Here are examples of revised theses in response to the example research questions. Bone cells monitor whether more or less weight is pressing down on the skeleton and send biochemical signals to appetite centers in their brains to turn appetite down or up accordingly. 
Mark Twain wrote more urgently and with less humor during the four years immediately after the death of his daughter. One or more reasons. You write what you believe makes your claim or thesis, the answer to your research question, true. That's your reason or reasons. Each reason is a summary statement of evidence you found in your research. The kinds of evidence considered convincing vary by discipline, so you'll be looking at different resources depending on your discipline. How many reasons you need depends on how complex your thesis and subject matter are, what you found in your sources, and how long your essay or term paper must be. It's always a good idea to write your reasons in a way that is easy for your audience to understand and be persuaded by. Here are some example reasons. Animals, including humans, have a biological tendency to regain any weight that they lose and lose any weight that they gain, seemingly in an effort to maintain whatever weight they have sustained for some time. Skeletons are logical places where any gains or losses could be noted, and recent studies seem to show that osteocytes, a kind of bone cell, are involved in whether appetites go up or down after weight gain or loss. My content analysis and a comparison of publication rates four years before and after Mark Twain's daughter died indicate that his writing was more urgent and less humorous for four years after. It is reasonable to conclude that her death caused that change. Evidence for each reason. You write this also. This is the evidence you summarized earlier to support each of the reasons that your thesis is true. You will be directly quoting, paraphrasing, and summarizing your sources to make the case that your answer to your research question is correct, or at least reasonable. Here are some examples uh, of evidence for reasons. Report the results of studies about osteocytes' possible effect on weight gain or loss. Report the results of your comparison of writing content and publication rate before and after Twain's daughter's death. Others' objections, counterarguments, or alternative solutions. Do any of your sources not agree with your thesis? You'll have to bring those up in your term paper. In addition, put yourself in your reader's shoes. What might they not find logical in your argument? In other words, which reasons and corresponding evidence might they find lacking? Did you find clues to what these could be in your resources? Or maybe you can imagine them thinking some aspect of what you think is evidence doesn't make sense. Here are some example objections, counterarguments, or alternative solutions. Imagine that some readers might think, the hormone leptin is released by fat cells when they are added to animals' bodies, so it is leptin that tells appetite centers to turn down when weight is gained. Imagine that some readers might think computerized content analysis tools are sort of blunt instruments and shouldn't be used to analyze Twain's work. Your acknowledgement of these objections, counterarguments, or alternative solutions. So what will you write to bring up each of these objections, counterarguments, and alternative solutions? Some examples. I can imagine skeptics wanting to point out. Perhaps some readers would say, I think those who come from XYZ would differ with me. It all depends on what objections, counterarguments, and alternative solutions your audience or your imagination come up with. Here are some examples. Some readers may point out that the hormone leptin, which is released by fat cells, signals appetite centers to lower the appetite when weight is gained. Readers may think that a computerized content analysis tool cannot do justice to the subtleties of the text. Response to others' objections, counterarguments, or alternative solutions. You must write your response to each objection, counterargument, or alternative solution brought up or that you've thought of. You're likely to have found clues for what to say in your sources. The reason you have to include this is that you can't very easily convince your audience until you show them how your claim stacks up against the opinions and reasoning of other people who don't at the moment agree with you. 
Here are some examples. But leptin must not be the entire system, since many animals do keep on the new weight. Unlike other content tools, the XYZ content analysis measure is able to take into account an author's tone. Helping others follow. As you switch from component to component in your paper, you'll be making what are called rhetorical moves, taking subsequent steps to move your argument along and be persuasive. Your readers will probably know what you're doing because the components in an everyday oral argument are the same as in a written argument. But why you're switching between components of your argument and with these particular sources might be less clear. The ideas and examples in this section are informed by They Say, I Say from Gerald Graff and Kathy Birkenstein. The fourth edition of They Say, I Say provides templates of actual language to be used in written arguments. This can be extremely helpful for beginning writers because it takes some of the mystery out of what to say and when to say it. For these templates, check the book out from your library. You can help readers follow your argument by inserting phrases that signal why you're doing what you're doing. Here are some examples. To state that what you're saying in your thesis, the answer to your research question, is in opposition to what others have said, you may say something like, Many people have believed X, but I have a different opinion. To move from a reason to a summary of a research study that supports it, as evidence, you might say, now let's take a look at the supporting research. To introduce a summary of a resource you've just mentioned, you could say, the point they make is. If the objection is that you're not being realistic, you could write, but am I being realistic? To acknowledge an objection you believe a reader could have, you might say, at this point, I should turn to an objection some are likely to be raising. And to move from the body of an essay to the conclusion, you could say, so, in conclusion. Phrases like these can grease the skids of your argument in your readers' minds, making it a lot easier for them to quickly get it instead of getting stuck on figuring out why you're bringing something up at a particular point. You will have pulled them into an argument conversation. Examples. The language of arguments done. The blog that accompanies the book They Say, I Say with Readings by Gerald Graff, Kathy Birkenstein, and Russell Durst contains short, elegant, constructed contemporary arguments from a variety of publications. Take a look at the They Say, I Say blog for a moment and read part of at least one of the readings to see how it can be helpful to you the next time you have to make a written argument.